What's happening, everybody? How you doing today? I'm doing all right. Thanks for asking. This is this is collaborative. This is a back and forth. Okay, podcasts can be interactive. You know, it's the internet now. You know, like we're all. You know, I don't know. I feel like I know you, and you probably feel like you know me. So cool. We know each other. My name's Corey Wong. For those of you that don't know me, <laughs> and this is the podcast Wong Notes. Thanks for hanging with us today. Super excited because we have an incredible musician, writer, band leader, witty human being, clever guy, Ed Robertson from the band Bare Naked Ladies. Now, I'm, I'm just want to set the record straight here. It's not the Bare Naked Ladies. Not even, geez. I'm in my 30s now, and still when I say Bare Naked Ladies as a band name, I'm like, scandalous. It's a little bit like, ugh. You know, I remember just being, I, it's, it's from, I got hip to this band when I was a kid, you know? So I'm in kid, I'm late elementary school or something, talking about Bare Naked Ladies. Like, dang, I don't want the teachers to think that I'm talking about something I shouldn't be. Anyways, whatever. What I was saying is, we got a little Eagles situation here. It's not the Eagles, it's Eagles. It's not the bare naked ladies. It's bare naked ladies. So I just wanna, I just wanna get that straight right out the gate. All right. You might know bare naked ladies. You might know Ed Robertson from a variety of smash hits. One week, it's all been done. If I had a million dollars, Brian Wilson. I don't know. There's like, there's tons of them, right? Pinch me. Too little, too late. You know, there's, there's just. There's just a lot of great stuff. And you know what's really great about this band is it's fun. It's fun to listen to, and it puts a smile on my face. So I really like Ed. I'm really excited about this interview. Ed's such a cool guy and somebody that I would really love to actually get in the room with and write and create with. So we got to do that. Ed, if you're listening, we did this, we did this interview a few months ago. So Ed, let's do it. Hey, thanks for listening, everybody. If you're not hip to this podcast, if this is your first time listening, welcome. Uh, I really have a good time doing this. Mostly we talk about guitar stuff, and sometimes I give you tips, and we talk about creative output and outlook and artistry and all that sort of stuff, because that's something that I'm super passionate about. So thanks for joining us. Here we go. This season of Wong Notes Podcast is brought to you by DistroKid. If you're not familiar with DistroKid, it's who I use to upload my music and whatnot to the internet. So I put out an album. DistroKid will send it to Spotify, Apple Music, Amazon. With other services, sometimes they charge you by the album per year. So like you have five albums out, they'll charge you for each album every year. With DistroKid, it's just one yearly fee. As many albums as your band has... They can be up there, and that's just one cost. I love it as somebody who puts out a lot of music. And if you're in a band or that sort of thing, you can actually pick your team, and they'll do splits for your team. So you can choose this person gets 25% of the royalties, this person gets 25%, this person gets 2% because they didn't contribute to the group project or whatever. No, 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 no. You can choose whatever percentage you want for as many collaborators as you want. So it's amazing. Check it out, DistroKid. Let's get to it. Ed, thank you for being with us. I am looking at you right now on screen and behind you. It looks like an amazing room you are in, but it also looks like it's an arcade. Tell me what is happening there. 
Why would you hang out in a place that's not amazing, first of all? Okay, that's great. I like that. That's a right? good, that's a good enough answer oh, right there. Uh, I started uh, collecting pinball machines in the late 90s. It is now a full-blown uh, obsession and mental illness. The way I am with pinball machines is the way I should be about guitars and guitar gear. <laughs> but I'm not. With guitars, I'm like, pretty sure that's a Telecaster. And with pinball machines, I'm like, that's an original 1980 Fathom with original Valley boards. It doesn't have the Altec Lansing MPU. But yeah, so I'm like that with pins, not with guitars. Nice. Uh, there's, a, there's a couple cool spots in the Twin Cities that have some nice pinball machines. There's this new Lebowski machine. Uh, yeah, big, I played it. You know, you know the big Lebowski one? I do. Yeah, made, in, uh, made by Dutch Pinballs. I know everything about it. Yeah, it's cool. Like you play pinball and then like you can get into this spot where you actually play bowling underneath the glass. Yeah, there's a little a little bowling alley underneath the play field. It's pretty wild. I I'm not going to get into the pinball conversation cuz clearly I can't hang. So <laughs> You're out of your league, Wong. You're out of your league. <laughs> nice, dude. <laughs> I like that. Well, this is really fun to have you on. I have so many questions and I want to kind of run through a bunch of different things regarding your songwriting, your approach to creativity in general. And I guess this pinball obsession gives me a little bit of insight also on uh, the way your brain works as well. So I want to, I want to deep, I want to deep dive into some more of this. Okay. Well, deep dive as you wish. I want to say at the outset, I feel atypical on the Corey Wong podcast. Because you have a lot of people that know their way around a guitar. And I'm a singer-songwriter. I consider myself somewhat ham-fisted at times on the guitar. I always avoid a solo if I can help it. I'll hand it (laughs) off to someone who's more capable. Uh, But I'm really honored to be here. I'm a huge fan of yours. I don't know if you know this. But thank you. I saw you at the Horseshoe in Toronto. I saw you at Madison Square Garden, uh, both with Fearless Flyers and Wolfpack. Wow. And I listen to your stuff all the time. Um, so this is a huge honor. Oh, well, thank you, man. That really means a lot. That's incredible. The Horseshoe, that, the Horseshoe and the Garden, those are two very different venues, but very fun. Both, both very I've fun. I've seen you in a dingy club, and I've seen you in one of the greatest arenas on the planet. Amazing. Well, thank you, man. It, it really is an honor to have you on here. I have been listening to your music since I was a kid. How dare you? <laughs> <laughs> so the funny thing is your, your career has spanned so much. Now, I wouldn't normally think of Bare Naked Ladies. I want to just start with this. I wouldn't normally think of the band as some, a band that's like known for their studio and their live albums. It's maybe a little less typical of a band like until I really did more of a deep dive on you, it's like, oh my gosh, the live thing is so much a part of the band. Where a lot of bands where you have some radio hits, you have some fun songs, it's not the same. Like like when you you think of Fish, Dave Matthews, Dad and Co, a lot of that sort of thing, Umphreys, like the live show in many cases is actually more than the studio experience. Right. They would probably say the same. And in your case, your live albums have played a huge part 
in your career as an artist. Can you talk to me about that? Yeah, well, definitely the live show is is the heart and soul of this band. And our, I think our live record, Rock Spectac, which came out in the mid-90s, 96, 97, just before Stunt. Yeah. It was the first live record to chart since Fram- Frampton Comes Alive. Really? Yeah. There's something weird like that. There's some stat about that record in relation to Frampton Comes Alive. I don't remember the details of it, but it's important. Yeah. <laughs> Just to be able to say Peter Frampton and Bare Naked Ladies, that uh, puts a smile on my face. Don't remember the details, but there's some fact about that. And that's all we need to know. Uh-huh. So that that live album that charted was the album before Stunt. Yes. It's the thing that put us on the map in America was we, really? we went from a club act to an arena act before we had a hit because we were known for the live show. And so in in 97, we started to sell out arenas before we had a hit single before we were in any of the major press. Um, But we had finally had the support of the label and uh, local radio stations all over America. And we were starting to play really big rooms and we were this underground thing in America. So when Dunt came out, you know, we were booked to play an in-store at Newbury Comics in Boston. Yeah. And they announced the where we were going to go in and play acoustic and sign autographs for whoever showed up. Yeah. And then the store manager said, okay, we made the announcement and I've had 3,000 phone calls of people looking for tickets. And I was like, wow, there's, there's no tickets, just come. And he said, like, I've started to, I've come to realize I can't host this thing. Like, it's going to be too big. So our label guy in Boston, Andrew Gavazzos, who's still a good friend, he phoned a friend at City Hall who he knew was a fan of the band. And they let us use City Hall Plaza in Boston. And remember, this was a record release acoustic performance. It was supposed to be in a record store. Yeah, totally. 80,000 people came. What? It was so wait, hold up. Is this is this at the release of stunt or this is before stunt? This is release day of stunt. This is release day of stunt. So for the people that are uh, I'm I'm gonna I have to backtrack in a second, but for people that don't know your music as intimately, stunt is the album, the fourth album for Bare Naked Ladies contained the hit songs One Week and It's All Been Done. Yeah. Amongst other songs, but those are probably the two most popular. So, was yeah. one week out before this? Then, yes. Um, okay, so one, one week, week had been a single. Yeah, one week had come out while we were like we were on the Horde tour, playing mid afternoon with with Blues Traveler headlining, and then all of a sudden we had a number one single, and yeah. we were we were the act going on it five o'clock or whatever you know wow Um, yeah then the record came out it was bonkers i think it debuted number two behind the beastie boys new record and yeah just everything changed overnight for us but yeah eighty thousand people showed up in city hall plaza 
they had to extend the subway opening. They closed the streets around City Hall Plaza. It was amazing. I still, to this day, policemen approach me in Boston and they go, yo, I was there that day, brother. That was amazing. (laughs) And the fact that you guys stayed and signed autographs for six hours after you played, I'll never forget it. Fan for life. Amazing. (laughs) Amazing. Okay, so I I need a little more context here for myself as well, for my own timeline from what I remember. Because like I said, I was a kid. So I remember knowing of the song. Well, I knew two songs before One Week came out. And now I don't, you got to tell me, why would I have known these songs? Would I have known them from Gordon, the original album, or would I known them from the live album? And I'm talking about If I Had a Million Dollars, which the the song in my head, the recording I'm remembering is the studio version, but maybe there was a live version that was more, like, I, I don't, I don't remember if the live version or if the studio version was more popular and being somebody in the U.S., did you feel like, like, to me, I felt like you were already you had already quote unquote made it before stunt came out in my mind as a kid listening to if I had a million dollars, like tell me about like, where would I have encountered you guys first? Uh, I would guess that it was actually the live version that you knew first. Cause when, when Gordon came out, it was massive in Canada. One of the biggest records ever in Canada, but it barely made a dent in America. We were playing to, you know, we were breaking attendance records in Southern Ontario. Here's another good one. If you like the Peter Frampton reference, we broke a longstanding attendance record at the great Western fair in London, Ontario. That was previously, <laughs> previously held by captain and Tennille. Wow. <laughs> so we played, you know, it was, it was 14 or 15,000 people. And then we drive over the border and play at the State Theater on 99X night in Detroit for 400 people who yeah. were, they just happened to be there for a 99X night. And they, sure. would, they would, you know, it was a DJ all night. They'd open the curtains and reveal a band nobody wanted to see. So <laughs> we were like big stars in Canada and couldn't get arrested in America uh, for a long time. And it, I think it was really the live record that put, if I had a million dollars, Brian Wilson and uh, Old Apartment. Uh, Yeah, yeah, yeah. They sort of broke from the live record, really. Interesting. And that that phenomenon where you literally go across the border is not unique to you. It's not unique to Canada. It's so interesting. I've seen this in several different artists. And I'm curious... I'll, I'll tell, share with you a couple examples just because I've seen it all over just as my as my like uh, proof of scientific experiment. Like <laughs> I, I need some explain like of a good friend of mine, actually a handful of friends of mine play for this artist named Georgia. She is in Italy. She is like the Whitney Houston of Italy. She is gigantic. She will sell out arenas in every city in Italy. Yep. But you go across the border of Italy, not a lot of people know who she is. Uh, we went to, my drummer is from Serbia. We toured in Serbia for a little bit, a handful of gigs. And we would go hang with these Serbian bands. There'd be like this group of of people there that's like, that came to our concert. There's this woman there who I got messages. People like, what is this woman doing at your concert? Why would she be here? Apparently she was like the Kim Kardashian of Serbia. 
And it was like, you look up her social media following and whatever the population of Serbia is that week, that's how many people follow her. The population goes down less. Like, it's just like the exact population of Serbia follows these bands and these celebrities. But you go outside of Serbia, nobody knows who they are. I'm curious because Canada is so close. Canada, like we could drive a couple hours each and meet each other right now if we wanted to. Like we could have dinner tonight with each other. Yeah. You know, so what is your, how how do you. Meanwhile, that Serbian star. That Serbian star is in your audience going, I want my Chipotle, give me my Chipotle. See, I know your stuff. (laughs) (laughs) That's it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it was difficult for us to understand early on because we're like, we're like the biggest band in the world right now in Canada. And Canada is so much like the U.S., but it's not. People ask me all the time, why did you guys get so big in the US, but the tragically hip didn't, or this band or that band? And I'm always like, because to the Canadian, to the to the American record label, Canada is Portugal. It's just some foreign nation that has nothing to do with their market. They don't think about the fact that it's an hour away. Everybody speaks the same language. They watch and consume the same media. Um, it's just a foreign territory as far as the label's concerned. And yeah, it's such a strange thing when you're a band. And I think it's discouraging for a lot of Canadian acts when they're huge up here and they go south of the border. Yeah. And they're like, well, screw this. I'm going back home and playing arenas. Yeah. And they forget that well, we only have 10 arenas. up here you know once you play vancouver edmonton calgary winnipeg toronto montreal halifax and maybe st john's if you're lucky you've done it and in america there's a new city that's bigger than toronto every two hours along the highway yeah that is crazy to me that you were playing arenas based off of your live show before you had hits but it also it like to me you're a hit song band, which is why it's surprising to me. Of course, if I look at it, it's not that surprising because you've got the jam community where there's so many acts that play arenas. Take a look at Wolfpack. We don't have any hits. Like we haven't been on the radio. Like there's some like kind of underground indie things with like back pocket and like internet like buzz things. But yeah. There's no real hit songs. But. But you sell out Madison Square Gardens and 18,000 people are singing Joe's bass solo. Yeah, that's it's pretty crazy. Right. So do you think do you think it's harder to get that sort of thing or do you think it's harder to get a hit song as somebody who has had both? I think both are uniquely difficult. And, (laughs) And for some reason, they don't cross pollinate mostly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, You get these bands that sell out multiple nights at Red Rocks and you mention them to a non-music nerd and they've never heard of them. Yeah. There's a lot of that. But also sometimes the inverse is true where there's people that have hit songs and they still only sell, like for whatever reason, I'm not going to name any people, but I know some artists that have, you know, top 10, top 20 songs every four years 
and they still only sell like yeah and I, I i'm i'm going to say only and i'm going to this is all relative but they're selling you know a thousand tickets yeah. or like 700 tickets in every major market where it's like i would have thought they'd be selling 5 or 6000 or 10 yeah you know? well I, I can tell you an anecdote about that one time uh, and i won't name any names um, yeah. but we were playing a huge festival in Chicago. It was like Metallica and Kid Rock. And we were like just a few before them on the bill. And there were a bunch of other bands that had a bunch of big radio singles that were earlier than us on the bill. Yeah. I remember the lead singer of one of those bands storming into the promoter's office not realizing I was sitting there with my tour manager getting my lunch ticket, you know, for yeah. this big festival. <laughs> this guy storms in, like literally slams the door against the wall. He goes, somebody want to explain to me why fucking bare naked ladies are further up the bill than my band? And the promoter went, well, it's because last time they played in Chicago, they did 6,000 tickets and you guys did 800. Hard ticket history, bro. Hard <laughs> yeah. ticket history. That's why. <laughs> yeah, that's that's tougher to swallow than your lunch today, bro. Yeah, yeah. That's that's like you know that's that's a hard thing. And, and and yes, sometimes there's a perceived value by the general public. Sometimes there's a perceived value by somebody's potentially inflated ego, and you got to reconcile with that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I'll tell you, as I said, both are hard. Having a hit single is like a weirdly mercurial thing to chase. I've been super lucky. It's happened a few times. But I would much rather have an audience. I would much rather have a live following. And to know that we can go out on the road and and people are going to come because we've built a trust with an audience over decades that they know when they come see us that we're swinging for the fences every time and they're going to have a good time. So I would say that's more hard one and you can count on it. You can't Mm. count on anything when you've had a hit. Yeah. It doesn't mean it's going to happen again. It doesn't give you anything. It, it's cool and it's there's a buzz for a while and maybe it opens some doors, but it doesn't give you an audience. It doesn't give you a live following. It doesn't give you a career mm. the way a live following can. And and the live following is on your own terms, right? Like you, yeah. you build it, you maintain it, and it, it, it is what you put into it, essentially. Yeah. That's really good insight. Now... The one thing that you get when you have a hit song, though, is you get somebody like Weird Al who will parody one of your songs. <laughs> and at that point, you know you've made it. Once Weird Al does one of your songs, Bonkers. you're in. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I I have often joked that was better than a Grammy nomination was to have oh, yeah. Weird Al cover the song. Like, <laughs> so good. He's such a nice dude. We When he had a television show back in the day, he had us on it. I think it was before he ever was probably before one week. I think he had us on. Oh, really? And, uh, yeah. Nice dude. And incredible musician. Like, yeah. Crazy uh, musician. Yeah. It was a huge honor, especially as a nerdy kid. 
growing up hearing all those singles. And in that era when he was not just recreating the song, but recreating the music video, yeah. like beat for beat as well. Um, so yeah, that, that, was, uh, that was a big honor. Brilliant. Yeah, Weird Al is, he's incredible. So a lot of people are familiar with your writing. They're familiar with a certain kind of humor, a certain kind of like twist on looking at things in your lyric writing, in just your personality, in your performance. Now, when I've listened to your new, your, some of your new stuff, your last couple singles, New Disaster, Flip, it, it, it is a perspective, a perspective shift as far as what I've known some of your writing to be about, which I want to I dive into some of your mindset in writing, but is there a way that you're writing, is there an approach to the way that you're writing right now on this new record and the last couple of singles that's different than the way you've written in the past? Um, I've written a lot for the last 10 years with, uh, with my buddy, Kevin Griffin, uh, who has a band better than Ezra. Yeah. And he's a, he's a pal for a long time. He started opening gigs, uh, doing like solo acoustic opening for bare naked ladies over a decade ago. And we just cool. hit it off. We're kind of the, the same kind of nerdy about the same sorts of things. We're similar age. We actually hit it off majorly on being massive Rush fans when, when we were kids. Nice. You know, so, so back and forth on all those ridiculous guitar licks all the time. Um, Says so, the guy who doesn't want guitar solos? Come on. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I, uh, <laughs> I, I tried to avoid the solo always, but, you know, all, all right, the sorry, sorry super complicated lives and stuff I was into. But yeah, my yeah. favorite solo... Uh, actually, is I think Alex's favorite solo too is his solo on Limelight, which is mm. so lyrical and yes, legato, yeah. and I could actually play that one. <laughs> nice, yeah, that's a great one. Um, but I don't, I don't know. Like in terms of my approach, the only thing I did differently with this record is I didn't use Master Writer for the first time in a long, long time. I wanted mm. to go back to pen and paper or just a word processor, not have a program feeding me rhymes, finishing my sentences, that sort of thing. I, I think I'd fallen into a bit of uh, using a, a hyper-automated rhyming dictionary. Got it. Yeah. And so I wanted to go back to the basics a little bit and write with a sketch pad and and... A, a voice memo recorder instead of building up a demo and then filling in the spaces, you know? Sure. Yeah. So that was a little bit different, but in some ways it was kind of a back to my roots uh, in, in the way I started writing songs. I, I would say I'm just more self-aware now, mm. which comes, you know, kind of hard one on the heels of decades of, real therapy, um, sure. you know, starting to actually tease through some of the darker things that I, that I hinted at before. And now yeah. I think I have enough self-awareness and understanding to actually go there and write some pretty cathartic things uh, that are self-exploratory and, and pretty raw and vulnerable. 
And I think in the past, I would have veered towards those things, but shied away and maybe said, oh, maybe written, I can understand why somebody would feel like that. (laughs) Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) On this record, I'm saying, this is me. That was shitty. (laughs) Yeah. So that that's a slight change, I guess. But ultimately, I'm trying to communicate an emotion or an idea, or I'm trying to tell a story. And hopefully, I've just gotten better at that over the years. Mm-hmm. I try to keep it pretty simple. Yeah. You mentioned uh, a decade of therapy. I myself have gone through counseling therapy pretty much since I was... Uh, I think in second grade. Wow. Um, and and like I'm not the the type of person that you would look at and be like, oh, he probably goes to therapy. Uh, maybe you would. Maybe I'm the exact person. But <laughs> I <laughs> I've had a lot of experience with a counselor, a lot of experience with a therapist, psychiatrist to kind of help me through my thoughts and help me through my the just my stuff. And like, not that I have any real underlying huge issues that I'm dealing with, but I think it's a really healthy thing to just make sure that I'm constantly doing a mental health checkup on myself, especially, I think you would know this, as soon as you start to get kind of any notoriety in um, in anything that you do, your mind can play different games in, in different ways. And yeah. what is the biggest thing that therapy has helped you I, I I don't want you to get too personal on it if you don't want to. Sure. I'm just wondering, like, for you, what has been the thing that's helped you most working through your feelings and your thoughts and being and your awareness of self? Well, therapy is not new for me, but talking about being in therapy is new for me. Mm, yeah. Uh, and I just thought with some of the songs on this record that are so direct and so personal. I know it's going to come up. I know I'm going to be talking about it. So I have to figure out how to talk about it. And yeah. I also want to destigmatize my own struggles. And because and maybe it helps someone else go like, yeah, I should totally. talk to somebody, you know? And I think because I've been, I've been viewed as this super positive, happy, go lucky, you know, fortunate front man for so long. It's, it's important for me to recognize my own struggles and mm-hmm. articulate my battles, you know, mm-hmm. imposter yeah. syndrome, struggling with the kind of father figure issues that so many people struggle with. I grew up with an alcoholic dad uh, who was just absolutely absent from my life. They're in the house, not, not abusive it was like a high functioning alcoholic, just completely disconnected. Mm-hmm. And it, it created a real struggle in my life. One that I carried for decades, you know? Yeah. And so working through some of that stuff with a therapist has helped me to get in touch with it, not be afraid of it not be embarrassed about it, not be embarrassed about people finding out about it. All these, like you build all these self-defense walls that are unnecessary. So you're maintaining these ramparts and these dikes and these moats just in case people find out 
that everything's not okay. Yeah. And then someone goes, Hey man, it's, it's, it's cool. I'm, I'm glad you told me, um, mm. you know, we're good. <laughs> like, Oh, so I didn't have to like buttress all my ramparts and load all my, uh, flaming oil barrels and prepare for this attack that was never coming. Yeah. <laughs> you know? So for me, it's been, uh, it's been a real weight off my shoulders to just start talking about some of this stuff and start admitting my own vulnerability, my own insecurity. How's the sure. front man of a ridiculously successful uh, rock band struggle with insecurity? And I, I tell people, like, I don't think anybody gets into performing without some level of insecurity. We crave mm. applause. We crave adoration and adulation and, and positive reinforcement, you know, cause yeah. on some level we need that. So it's been cool for me to kind of put that out there and have not only most importantly, I would say the reaction of my bandmates saying like, dude, we love these songs. Like mm. guys telling me, that live well on this record, which is a pretty raw one saying like Tyler, the drummer saying, that's, I think it's my favorite song you've ever written. Wow. And that's a song for me. It was a little scary to bring it to the guys and go like, is this too much? <laughs> like, mm, yeah. is, is this too much for a bare naked ladies record and to have them embrace it and to have friends of mine that I've sent early copies of the record hit me back right away and go like, dude, I'm loving this track. So that's yeah. been really nice. Yeah. The song New Disaster confronts anxiety in a way that I think is very relatable with uh, kind of everybody in today's society. But I think it, it, it comes from a place where it, it, it feels very universal. Like it feels like um, everybody can relate to it. But as a fellow artist, musician, there is a certain anxiety and imposter syndrome like you're talking about or insecurity that we have that like I don't know I feel like sometimes that anxiety as things get like as things with a career build and build sometimes like uh, although you might think oh well it's got to just be easier and easier like that anxiety's got to go away once you have any sense of notoriety or success but in a lot of cases it's actually just even more it's yeah like, wow there's so much more to lose wow there's so much more on the line like there's so much so many more opinions. <laughs> when I realized I really had to get this shit under control was leading up to my Canadian Music Hall of Fame induction. Yeah. I had to leave Facebook. I couldn't handle the negativity on it. I was losing my mind. Yeah. And then I, I literally on the way to the ceremony where I'm being inducted into the Hall of Fame, I'm worrying about well, what are people going to think, you know, if I do this and what if I do that? And I'm like, I've made it. I'm, I'm there. It doesn't get better. I've had the hit singles. Uh, our record went diamond in Canada, not platinum, diamond, you know? And, and I'm 30 years into this career and I'm still second guessing myself. And yeah, and insecure about the induction ceremony into the Hall of Fame. And I thought, I got to figure this out. Like, this isn't right. I should be 
enjoying this moment, not yeah. uh, spinning my tires in my head, trying to make sense of it all. I should just be enjoying it. And at that point, I've been in therapy for a long, long time, you know? So I was like, okay, I got to get off Facebook. I got to get out of the comments. I got to get into, yeah. into my own head and realize that there's some negative things driving the bus in there. And I've got to take the wheel because Jesus ain't going to do it. <laughs> um, so it was, uh, yeah, the last couple of years have felt like coming out from under a, a big weight for me. And New Disaster, yeah, is about the fire hose of bad news. I think we were all yeah. feeling it more and more, right? Like everybody was feeling yeah. it. Then we went into lockdown as a planet and it was a constant stream of, you think it's bad now? Well, it's only getting worse. And yeah, it was so anxiety inducing. And I'm like, I'm up at my cottage on a lake three hours north east of Toronto. Mm-hmm. My neighbors are nowhere near me. I'm in a forest. There's no one near here. And I was yeah. scared day to day. I was like freaked out about going into town and going to the grocery store. There were no cases up here, but I was being fed a constant barrage of bad news and it gets to you it 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 changes you so that i mean that's what new disaster is about it's about realizing we are in this toxic stream of it's a combination of the 24-hour news cycle and anti-social media just being relentless on our psyches and yeah it's about trying to slip that hold and find a better story all right, all right. At the beginning of the episode, you heard me talking about DistroKid. I'm going to mention him again because it's worth it to me. I really think that if you are an artist, you should have an easy and comfortable way to upload your music and get it distributed to all the streaming platforms like Spotify, Apple Music, Amazon, YouTube Music, blah, 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 all that stuff. You should have a way to do that. DistroKid makes it really easy. And also, they don't take a percentage. They do not take a percentage of your royalties. That's amazing. All they do is charge a yearly fee. I love it. I use it. If you're making your own music and want to put it out there in the world, I would suggest using DistroKid. That's that. Easy as that. Let's get back to the interview. Now, when it comes to making albums, one of the things you have to think about is track order. (laughs) Okay, I was looking at, I was thinking about, as as I was thinking about, where did I first hear if I had a million dollars? And then I went back. It's like, okay, was it the live version or was it the studio version? So I listened to both versions. It's like, I don't know. They're they're like both. Uh, how I, I, they're just kind of the same in my brain, just from listening to both of them a lot. If I had a million dollars, was track number fourteen on your first album? Now I want to know because that to me, I, I mean, as as a general public listener of that song, that's the biggest song on that album. Did you guys just screw up the track listing? Was it a different game back then and the track order just didn't matter? Or is the song just that good and you guys didn't realize that it was that good? There's like, no, no, no. Track 14 is the one that just rose to the top. 
geniuses of album sequencing from the early <laughs> 90s. Um, here's the interesting thing. If I Had a Million Dollars was actually never a single. Really? It wasn't a single off that record. It wasn't a single off the live record. It just got played. It, it got yeah. played at radio stations. Kind of was never a hit, but it was on constant play from the time it was released until now. Like it still gets played regularly. As far as the track sequencing, I don't know. Did we think like, okay, so they're certainly not going to skip to If I Had a Million Dollars. They're going to have to listen to box set and... And uh, I love you to get there, you know? So this was like clever, cleverly crafted. I don't know what we were thinking. It's, now we would probably put it, you know, third on the record, I think. Okay. Now, okay, this is, you, you mentioned If I Had a Million Dollars was not a single. I, when I think of some of your writing, it to me, so uh, if I think about you, I'm looking at your pinball thing. I'm looking at the fact that you are a licensed pilot. Just like the way you write lyrics, the, the way that your brain works, you seem like the kind of person that in the modern age could craft and manifest viral moments and viral memes and videos and that sort of thing. Like to me, when I'm thinking about and hearing you talk about how If I Had a Million Dollars got popular... It almost feels to me like if it was released in 2010, 2020, it's the sort of thing that would like, it, okay, like it didn't go huge on rate. Like we didn't release it to radio, but it got huge on Reddit. It got huge on YouTube. And right. now all the radio stations are playing it. Like right. it kind of feels like it's running the, like maybe it was running the same software program that the modern machine does when like something just gets big on, on Reddit or something gets TikTok, big on some, yeah. yeah, TikTok, some sort of meme culture. Like, I feel like listening to your lyrics and watching your artistry, I feel like you'd be the perfect person for some company to hire, to like <laughs> create us viral moments once a month. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's, it's funny. Like I talked to my kids about that. I didn't have a cell phone until after we released Stunt. Mm. Like, I'd already been touring around the world. I didn't have a... I, I didn't have the internet. We made a CD-ROM to go along with Born on a Pirate Ship, the record that was out before Stunt. Wow. You know, yeah. a, a computer program that you could click around and watch videos of the band. Like, we were... We existed and built a huge audience and had hit singles before the, there, were, there were memes, before mm -hmm. there was an internet. There was an internet, but only the military and Al Gore were on it. Yeah. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so it's weird that I'm from that era and I'm, I'm, you know, my daughter now who's 26 works in social media. So I get a little more insight into it but yeah, I was a pop culture nerd before it was kind of easy to be one. So the fact that I now have all these tools at my disposal to make me even more nerdy is a lot of fun. It, it feels like I was trying to tap into that zeitgeist. Even songs like One Week with its myriad of uh, situational 
up to the moment pop culture references. Like I, I, I thought that was cool. And I'm always yeah. kind of playing, you know, a, a, another guy I've written with a Toronto dude called Ian Lefevre. He, he always describes me as the lyrical Tetris master. Cause I'm always yeah. looking for that weird shape syllabic run that fits perfectly and dog ears with the other one and the rhymes in the middle catching the next rhyme scheme. And yeah, that's what I love. I love the intricacy of lyric writing. And um, I, I'm super into the minutia of a lyric. It's why I, despite being like a rock, a pop rock guy, I'm super into Eminem's lyric writing. And yeah. there's a modern songwriter like Donovan Woods, who I know was super influenced by Nas. And like a lot of modern writers have been heavily influenced by hip hop because, you know, I, I, I often say like, I'm, I'm pretty happy when the line rhymes. You know, if I can also get an internal rhyme in there, then I feel like I'm firing on all cylinders. Then you listen to Eminem and there's like five rhymes per line. Yeah. And none of it seems forced. It all yeah. seems conversational. You know, yeah. that's where as a writer, you just have to bow down and go, well, he's on another plane entirely. Yeah. You know, if, if that guy could write a melody, we, we'd have the greatest songwriter that ever lived. Mm. Wow. Now, you, a lot of people use the, the thing that you're talking about where you talk about the modern zeitgeist. But it just kind of feels like, okay, you're just trying to be cute by throwing in some things uh, that are modern day references. So then people are like, oh, cool. Yeah, like that's the song that talks about this thing that I'm also into. So now I just like this song. Now, you have an interesting approach where even all of what you were just talking about, there's so much dedication to the craft of writing, to the craft of really really sculpting a line, sculpting a verse through. So, you know, where you're talking about modern zeitgeist things, whether you're talking about Leanne Rhymes and X-Files and whatever in, in one week, it's like it's all woven in to very highly executed, highly crafted writing, which to me, again, it, it goes back to you knowing the intricacies of the pinball machines and being a pilot and just like, the way that your brain works, there's something where it's like, it feels like you you understand and maybe you're trying to find the mechanics of something, but also at the same time, you have a very high awareness of the things around you, whether it be pop culture or just society. And then also the creative side to kind of look at all those things from above and piece them together into one thing what you said at the beginning there made me think of like a lot of modern country writing which is like red solo cups and trucker hats and they're trying to reference the broadest possible trend and it's sure it's kind of i find it uninteresting although the production is slamming you know, yeah, yeah. There's modern a lot of really country cool production, production yeah, yeah. but it's just hip hop. You know, it's hip hop production. But for me, I'm always trying to. I'm not looking 
to name drop the thing that's popular. I'm looking to like name drop the thing that's super nerdy and on the fringe. I always say like when I'm playing live, I don't want the whole audience chuckling. I want 80% of people looking at me incredulously like they don't know what I'm talking about and five people dying laughing. Yeah. Like that's the ideal for me is like, I love that I've connected with a small handful of people and they are beside themselves right now. And most, most people are bewildered though. That's my favorite feeling. (laughs) I love that. So that's what I'm trying to do a lot of times in songs is like, you know, obviously I'm trying to convey an idea. One week is about a breakup. One week is about the stages of a fight Yeah. as they drag out. And, and for me, the funny thing about it is tipping the hat saying like, I knew I was wrong on day one of the fight, but I got to go through these stages to save face, you know? Yeah. And then it's just, uh, a stream of consciousness. It was actually freestyled. It was a, a total stream of consciousness, freestyle rap of nonsense, complete nonsense. And it's all self-referential and referencing stuff the band was into at the time and popular movies and news stories and whatever. And it was not meticulous. It was a, like I, I, I set up at the time the peak of technology a high eight video camcorder uh, recording onto those little hot, you, you might be too young for these, these little high eight video recorders. And I freestyled for five minutes and then I just called all my favorite verses. And that was the song. Like I wrote it in five minutes. Wow. But you know, it comes on the heels of freestyling for 10 years on stage and being super nerdy about stuff so that you can then just be free with a process like that and you you dig the gold out of it. Do you think that's sort of that finding a niche thing like you're talking about rather than trying to go for the broad general thing? Do you think for musicians, for artists, creative people in general, people who are making memes at home, do you think shooting for the 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 deepest niche is the way to be the most magnetic? I, do, I think you have to be sparing with it, you know? Because uh, ultimately, one thing I, I, I feel like I learned early on was you have to be personal. Because I think if you try to write songs that are broadly relatable, then you grab nobody, you know? And you see that. You see kind of empty songs that just kind of go by and sometimes they become popular, but you listen to them, you think, what's that even about? Like, I don't know. It's just catchy. It's the production's amazing. Uh, the melody's great, but not, not a real song in there, but whatever, you know, and it kind of comes and goes. Yeah. What I try to do, and this is, this is outside of what we were talking about, the sort of, fun pop culture references and nerdy fringe stuff. I try to be as personal as I can possibly be when I'm writing. I try to be very specific, very personal. I try to use things that I've said or that someone said to me that hurt or that 
woke me up or that changed my mind, whatever it is, I try to be really specific. And I find the more specific I am, the more people actually relate to it. Because my job as a writer is to try to articulate the things I've been through. And a lot of people who are listening to my songs haven't known how to articulate what they've gone through. They're not a creative person. They're not a writer. They're not a poet. And so I've had people say to me, man, this line, I felt like you were writing about my life. Like I felt like you were writing about a specific situation in my life. And I say, well, that's because I was writing about a specific situation in my life. And we all go through the same things. But if I tried to write broadly about, you know, going through something or struggling with something, then it w- that person wouldn't have keyed into that moment. So I find, oddly, the more specific I get, the more broadly I'm communicating. Yeah, I like that a lot. That, that, that makes a lot of sense. I think maybe it might be counterintuitive to a lot of young writers, but it makes so much sense. And as, if I'm, as I'm thinking about a lot of your songs... I'm thinking a lot of the songs that I really connect with. That's totally it. It makes me, you know, I often think about U2 songs because they sound sort of broad sometimes. They sound, Mm -hmm. sometimes they can sound a little detached or nebulous. They're just kind of anthems for some reason. Yeah. But I think it's because he is oddly specific when he's writing and he's, Really, I say he, I'm making the assumption that Bono writes most of the lyrics. Sure. I think he does. I think that the reason a U2 song can be about famine, and then it's about AIDS, and then it's about sexual identity, you know, they take on different lives and different causes. I think because they start off so pointedly, oddly specific, that they can then be kind of mapped on to a personal journey, Mm. you know? But I don't think that comes from being vague or broad. I think it comes from being really nuanced and really personal. I I think that's how you, you know, I'm not trying to say here, these are the ways I'm like the biggest bands ever. (laughs) <laughs> I'm just saying no, I, I get something what you're saying. Yeah. I noticed about you two is sure. These broadly appealing songs are actually not broad and vague. They're actually really specific. Hmm. I'm going to listen with that lens. I like that. That's cool. I have a question about how do you through your the last you you know, you said you've been doing this for 30 years. When you've had huge success with a live album, live stuff, hit songs. When that sort of, when those sort of like spikes happen, how do you, speaking of uh, also Frampton Comes Alive, Peter Frampton talked to me about this uh, in my interview with him. He was talking about kind of like coming off of Frampton Comes Alive and coming off of things like then what the label expects, what society and the general public expects and then what he expects of himself. I'm curious for you, having a really successful live album, having successful hit songs. When it comes time to do that thing again, as somebody who's had to do that several times, 
how do you like what's the best approach in your opinion on okay we've had success now we're coming back in to to do something again what's the best way to make that next thing you have to remember that you made the thing that was successful without the expectation of success mm so you have to make the follow up with the same adventurous spirit that you made the thing that made you successful with but that's really hard to do because yeah. you go from the scrappy underdogs that we were when we made stunt you know we built a live following we were super super cocky and confident but out kind of outside of the system we just barely had the support of the label we were really kind of a cult band we hadn't broken yeah. through in, in any uh sense although we had a big following at that point yeah. so we went in and we made kind of a brash adventurous brazen record so my advice to bare naked ladies at that time would have been well just go do the same thing just go be adventurous go have fun the difference is you go from a band touring on a rock bus with a with one truck to six buses and three trucks and 50 crew people and the label is now like doting on you and you've maybe bought a new house your lifestyle's changed a bit all of a sudden you're thinking about like what you need to maintain not mm. not so much about being creative you're like okay well the label wants this the label wants this the label wants this and they want to hear the singles they want to pick the singles before we even make the record yeah and i'm like i haven't even written the songs like <laughs> they're already asking me you know when can we hear these the focus tracks i'm like i don't even know if they're gonna come yeah it's just the pressure ramps up necessarily it's like it you almost can't avoid it. It took me a long time to get back to a place of writing for fun, writing to explore ideas. I say now, like, there's three people I'm trying to impress when I make a record, and they're the other guys in my band. That's who I'm trying to impress when I do a live show. I want to go back to the dressing room after a show and be laughing with the guys and talking about all the fun moments in the show. That's all I care about. I don't care what the review is in the paper the next day. I care that the audience left happy and the guys in my band had a great time. And same when I present a group of songs to the guys now, I care what they think. And I care what their input is going to be when we make the record. And I care how we feel about the record. My record comes out tomorrow right I, I think this is second season for you it'll come out like in september sometime or something but my record comes out july 16th tomorrow and it's a weird time to be putting a record out you know there isn't the blitz of going to 100 radio stations and and doing all the shows and festivals to promote it it's kind of going to come out in a little bit of a void uh in these weird barely getting off the ground sort of pandemic times. It's funny, like 
right now, the thing I'm most excited about, even though I have a record coming out tomorrow that I'm enormously proud of, I've been asked to induct a hero of mine, childhood hero, this guy called Kim Mitchell. I don't know if you know him at all, but he's huge in Canada. He had a band called Max Webster. They were kind of like Canada's Frank Zappa in the mid to late 70s. They broke up in 1980. And then Kim Mitchell had a solo career that, that eclipsed anything that Max Webster did. But I was an early Max Webster fan and then a Kim Mitchell fan. He's one of my favorite guitar players ever. Can't play any of his solos, of course. But he asked me to induct him into the Songwriting Hall of Fame next week, which was a massive honor for me. And so I'm, I've been thinking, what am I going to say? Like, this is the guy, like, I had his album cover. I had my mom sew it onto my jean jacket when I was 16 years old, you know? I, I recorded his songs onto my little portable cassette player off the radio so I could listen on my cassette Walkman on the way to school. And then, day before yesterday, he reached out and said, hey, they want me to perform. Do you want to play with me at this thing? Right? And then he requested that I play with him on a particular song, a Max Webster song called On the Road. It's like one of the first songs I ever played with my high school band when I was 15 years old, you know? And now I'm going to play it with the writer while inducting him into the Hall of Fame. Like, that's the thing at the moment. Like, yeah, I've got a new record coming out, but I have literal dreams coming true also. A aside, and not just the dream of, like, being a dude in a rock band with a long, successful career, but the ridiculous childhood dreams before you know what's involved, before you know what it's like to deal with record labels and, and putting a record out and touring it and doing the radio visits and all that stuff, when it's just a fantasy and you think, yeah. man, imagine I could play this song with him on stage one day. That's happening. You know, I got to play with the guys in Rush years back. Those <laughs> things happened to me you know so yeah it's those funny sort of out of touch childhood fantasy dreams that i i actually think it's really important to keep in touch with in some way you know because yeah you probably know like as much as you fantasized about being a guy in a band and during doing tours and releasing records None of that is like what you imagined it to be. So you kind of have to force yourself to be in touch with that kid that wanted that, you know? Yes. And remind absolutely. yourself that on your worst day, when you're your most burnt out and you do not want to be away from home and you're tired, you're maybe a little sick, you got to remember you are literally living the dream. You know? Mm. You, yeah. you have risen to the top 1% of 1% of artists that make a career out of this from people yeah. that imagined making a career out of it. So it's funny, I'm, I'm releasing a record tomorrow and yeah, I'm excited about it, but I've got this other thing that I'm getting ready for. Funny thing, cause I told you I'm not, I'm not a guitar God by any means. I've been playing this song on the road 
for 40 years. And I've known for 40 years that I've been playing it a little wrong. <laughs> and I never bothered to get the actual chords, you know? And so I'm like, now I'm like, okay, I got to play it with Kim. I got to get these chords right. So I find yeah. like I've, I've been, last couple of days I've been getting ready to do this thing, trying to get my hands around the real chords of this song. It's been quite fun. That's awesome. Oh, man. Well, it sounds like you have some amazing stuff happening. I really appreciate you coming and sharing some of your wisdom and just talking through this stuff, getting getting to pick your brain a little bit, because I, I now I have some things to think about in my own creative. I, like I have some newfound inspiration after this conversation. So thank you for um, for sharing that with us. And for anybody listening, go check out the new Bare Naked Ladies album. There's very cool music videos too. The song New Disaster we were talking about, there's a really cool animated music video, uh, kind of comic book style, incredible video. And I just, I love what you guys are doing. We got to hang in person sometime. Let's, let's, let's play some music. Let's, let's hang, man. I would love that, Corey. I'm such a fan of yours. I'm a fan of your whole approach, your aesthetic. Uh, obviously, I love your playing. And your recordings are so, I, I, I want to say meticulous, but they're also the spirit of energy and adventurous and everything is secondary to the most important thing, which is the groove. And I just, I love, I love your records. And the, the times I've seen you live has reaffirmed everything that I imagined about your approach. You just look like you're having a blast and uh yeah i would love to hang i would love to make music together i am at your disposal let's do it that means so much to hear and i would love to write songs together well you have all the heaviest motherfuckers in the world breathing down your neck i'm sure but uh (laughs) i'm a fan and i would love to do something anytime my kid is just getting his band off the ground. He has a band called High Flyer, and they are so into you. It's insane. Oh, by the way, congrats on the signature Strat, too. It looks awesome. Oh, thank you. So stoked about that. Yeah, no kidding. It it looks wicked. I saw the announcement the other day. Well, actually, I saw it on your Instagram feed, and then I, I tried to go buy one right away, but I guess they're not available yet. Well, they're, now they're available. They're oh, available they? okay. right now. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Well, I will do that. All right. I love that. Can I give you my number and you can text me and then we'll actually be in touch? Yes. Let's do it after we're done recording so people listening to the podcast don't text you. <laughs> okay. Good <laughs> idea. Yes. Let's call, do that. Just yeah. call, dial the operator, ask for Canada, and ask to be connected for the to the guy from Bare Naked Ladies. They know my number. Oh, yeah. That's the guy three hours outside of Toronto, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we got him. <laughs> awesome. Well, Ed, thank you so much for, for being here, man. Thank you, Corey. It was, a, it was a thrill to talk to you. There you have it. Ed Robertson. Great, dude. Gosh. I think it'd be really fun to like start a band with Ed. I want to get like a handful of Ed and one other singer-songwriter so they could like harmonize and switch off. Just put together like a super cool band. I'm into that. 
Whoever wants in, email us, okay? Hey, thanks for being here this week and listening. We're having fun doing this thing, so smash that subscribe or follow or whatever it is because it's on the internet and, you know, everybody's changing what they have. But, you know, you know what to do. We got some great, great guitar, deep, deep guitar episodes coming up. So we'll see you next time. Peace.